Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Jean-Baptiste Camille Corot is best known as the great master of landscape painting in the 19th century, who bridged the French neoclassical tradition with the Impressionist movement of the 1870s. In honor of the opening of the exhibition Corot, Women, Mary Morton argues that Corot's figure paintings, although constituting a much smaller, less well-known portion of his oeuvre, are of equal importance to the history of art, in particular for the founders of modernist painting, such as Paul Cézanne, Pablo Picasso, and Georges Braque. Dressed in rustic Italian costume or nude on a grassy plain, Corot's women read, dream, and gaze directly at the viewer, conveying a sense of their inner lives. On September 9, 2018, at the National Gallery of Art, Morton explains how Corot's sophisticated use of color and his deft, delicate touch applied to the female form resulted in pictures of quiet majesty. Corot Women is on view through December 31, 2018. In the historiography of 19th century French painting, Camille Corot plays the central role in what we call the triumph of landscape, which is the ascendance of a genre traditionally ranked rather low on the academic hierarchy. Beginning with his first trip to Italy in 1825, he stayed there for about three years, the student of Michelon and Bertin applied himself to the study of outdoor light, painting in nature and setting the scene for the modernist movement of Impressionism. And I'm showing you two pictures from our collection. Um, this wonderful little work, one of the great studies that he does in Italy from the first trip. And then the painting on the right, we recently received from the Corcoran collection. It's uh, a later work, atmospheric, very silvery landscape. These pictures were known as souvenirs or memories. The pictures that you see, like the ones on the right, um, were avidly collected during the Second Empire and Third Republic, and their popularity among American collectors in particular resulted in significant Corot holdings in museums across the United States. And I am going to tell the Corot joke that I know many of you have already heard, which is that Corot, he lived a long time, he painted a lot of pictures along his, across his life, and it's said that he painted about 3,000 paintings, 5,000 of which are in the United States. <laughs> There's a little bit of a problem with uh, fakes and forgeries of Corot, specifically landscapes. Not such a problem with figures, although not unknown. Who knew that this great landscape painter also created an ambitious body of figure paintings? Not the salon-going public in Paris in the third, uh, middle third of the 19th century, as he only exhibited a handful of the figures despite exhibiting landscapes almost every year. Not many collectors, apart from a small group of aficionados and friends during his life. Artists knew about them. Uh, they frequented his studio until his death in 1875, and the contents were dispersed by sale. They were able to see all of his works there. Um, thereafter, the pickings were rather slim, but avant-garde collectors had some of them and made them available to young artists. And then in 1909, at the Salon d'Automne, uh, which was the cutting-edge exhibition space in Paris, where the fauves have, had broken out four years earlier and where the following year cubism would be born, they exhibited 24 figure paintings by Corot. 
the first exhibition to focus on them. Picasso and Brock and Gris were thrilled by them in 1909, and they incorporated lessons learned into their work over the next years. And I'm showing you a uh, slide. This is a picture of Brock's studio. And you'll see there our lovely a reproduction of Agostina. And this is the painting in the exhibition from Sao Paulo. The figures comprise only about 10% of his oeuvre and were done mostly in his last two decades, the later 1850s up into the early 1870s. On rare occasions, he painted men dressed as monks or in armor, but the majority of the figural work is focused on the female model, usually costumed, sometimes nude, like the portraits of Paul Cezanne, whom Corot would so profoundly inspire. And the show, of course, takes place in the exhibition galleries in the West Building, recently evacuated by Cezanne portraits. Uh, and it's been a wonderful confluence of events for me while working on these two projects at the same time, and I hope for you in seeing them. So like Cezanne's portraits, Corot's women are related to his more famous landscape of, but they essentially stand apart uh, as a discrete, aesthetically advanced achievement. The female figures were rarely exhibited during Corot's lifetime, and they've appeared erratically in the dozens of exhibitions devoted to the artist over the last century and a half. When considered as a group, Corot's women reveal the artist's extraordinary interest in and sensitivity to feminine subjectivity and the range of formally innovative means employed to register his impressions. So I'm showing you this slide. This is actually the slide that I showed to our director, Rusty Powell, a couple of years ago in order to get him to commit to doing this great show. I've wanted to do this show for almost 20 years. But you'll see three paintings there on that slide, all of which belong to the National Gallery. And I will go into them in greater detail later in the lecture, but I just wanted to give you this intro. This is Agostina. She was bought uh, by um, Chester and Maud Dale in 1931 and has not left the building since their bequest in 1963. So she has not participated in any of the Corot exhibitions around the world. Um, we have also at the gallery, I think the finest of this very interesting studio series that Corot does later in his life. There are about six or seven or eight, depending on how you define it, but I think that the National Gallery's version is the finest. And then finally, recently from the Corcoran, again, it was really my favorite European painting in the Corcoran collection, um, the, um, the Repose, this reclining female nude. So we have the best in three of his main genres. The female subject in French painting tended to be highly idealized according to certain social and political values carefully monitored by the French Academy and its official institutions for artistic training and exhibition. Representational traditions dating back to antiquity regulated her form, allowing for occasional inflections in response to contemporary mores. Corot entered the field during a moment in French history when academic standards were increasingly in the crosshairs of young, ambitious artists. The aesthetic ideologies of romanticism uh, and uh, realism vied for avant-garde preeminence, and the advancing field of commercial photography was both threatening and expanding the possibilities of artistic representation. 
Koro responded to these pressures with images of women that belie general cultural constructs, nor do they qualify as portraits in that they avoid conventional signifiers of character. They do convey a sense of particular presence, an imprint made by the woman in the studio in the process of being painted by Corot. Though not all, always easy to characterize, they impart a palpable and potent humanity, the more surprising from an artist so dedicated to paintings of landscape. In his studio practice, Corot was noted for his concern for the well-being of his models and his personal and professional respect for them. Models frequently came to Corot's studio to offer their services, and he was reluctant to turn them away. He enjoyed modeling sessions, referring to them as vacations from the more lucrative work of producing landscapes for the market, which became increasingly demanding in the 1860s and early 1870s. He seems to have been popular among models, a kind and trustworthy employer whose considerate relations with his paid sitters were legendary. His moniker, Père Coro, or Papa Coro, conveys this gentle paternalism in counterpoint to the macho lore of the artist's studio as a den of seduction and exploitation where models could slip easily into prostitution. Against the conventional, highly controlled studio session in which the master manipulated his model as material in service of his conception, Coro encouraged his sitters to relax in his presence. And I'm just showing you two sheets from the Louvre. They aren't actually in the exhibition. We decided just to have paintings. But I think they show you, particularly in the way that he pays attention to the faces and specifically the eyes, his interest in them and their sort of inner life. Coro's responsiveness to the transitory moods and emotions of his models was likened by his friend Henri Dumenel to his sensitivity to light in his landscape painting. In contrast to photography's capture of just one instant in the life of a landscaper figure, Coro's agile brush could record a more profound and subtle essence. He quotes Coro as having told him, you have to experience your model over time the range of animating moods and emotions in order to penetrate her character. The touch must be sensitive to this mobile soul, not a portrait just of a moment as you get in a photograph, but rather a more profound portrait. And I'm showing you a gigantic uh, slide of a, of a very small painting from Copenhagen. Um, it's one of my favorites in the show, so freely painted, probably created over the course of an hour or two. Really beautiful. Um, this particular sensitivity to, to women and female experience is what we're foregrounding. And I would suggest that, uh, that this sensitivity may have resulted in part from Coro's rather unusual personal history. His mother was a successful milliner and dress designer during the Restoration and the July Monarchy. Her shop was one of the hottest places in Paris uh, among the Parisian elite to buy the latest dress. While she had brought to her marriage with Corot's father a healthy dowry, the family wealth derived largely from the success of the shop that she ran on the Rue de Bac with the aid of her husband. Growing up in her shop, surrounded by her assistants, Corot admired her and considered her an artist in her own right. He himself never married, remaining through his long life in the marginal social position of a bachelor. He was close to, very close to his sister, Annette Octavie, and he lived with his parents until the age of 54 when his mother passed away. 
one registers a variety of sitters in Corot's figure of, rather than an imposed physiognomic female type. He kept notes on particular models, their names, addresses, and the physical attributes that might appeal to the artist's eye. Frequently, they directly face the spectator, disconcertingly reversing the roles of the observer and the observed. Corot's reputed gentle manner and lack of ego seem to have allowed the sitter's imprint on and participation in the painted image. Corot's costumed single-figure works range from vaguely neoclassical images of models in muted tones, antique garb, and simplified compositions to more romantic evocations of sitters in richly colored exotic dress. Among the most refined examples of the former is this picture from the Smith College Museum of Art called the Blonde Gascon. Inspired by antiquity, Italian Renaissance masters, and the French neoclassicist Nicolas Poussin, this small-scale work conveys the strength as well as the grace and serenity of his model with her large eyes and intent frontal gaze. Using small, precise strokes, Corot neatly draws the features of her oval face, balanced above the curve of her arms, linked by her hands. The figure is firmly locked into place by the rectangular plinth and the horizon line. The painting achieves a physical authority and aloofness that would impress early 20th century artists. A counterpoint to the blonde Gascon is this picture from uh, Williamstown from the Clark Art Institute young woman in a pink skirt, which combines sensuality and subtle décolleté with a rather haunting gaze, suggesting the peculiarly Corot-esque genre of the melancholic erotic, which I'll see, I think you'll see a couple of examples of, particularly in that first room. The model sits with slumped shoulders, her idle hands awkwardly small in her lap as vaguely sketched trees in dark earth tones hover above her, above her head. Compositions feature, featuring models dressed in Italianate or vaguely Bohemian Eastern European costumes deployed Corot's sophisticated color sensibility in his descriptions of costume details while conveying in each a distinct feminine subjectivity. Having grown up in a, in a women's fashion shop and having worked as a cloth merchant himself as a young man, he got into the family business and then finally convinced his parents to um, release him so he could become a professional artist. But growing up in this environment, he was sensitized to the color and texture of fabrics. In these paintings, he explored a more intense palette than that allowed by his landscapes. And so I think that you will discover a more um, exuberant colorist than you may have thought Corot to be in these pictures. And I'm showing you, this also is a National Gallery of Art picture, Italian girl. She was uh, recently cleaned just a couple of years ago by a um, conservation fellow. And uh, the cleaning unleashed, in particular, not only this wonderful sort of um, sliver of moon coming up in the corner, but the cleaning really um, made you aware of how gorgeous the apron is, particularly as it comes down to the corner and it sort of flattens out and it's just this extraordinarily energetic color field of oranges and greens, really beautiful. 
It's unlikely that the ethnic resonance of the costumes bore no significance for the artist. In a letter to a friend in 1857 about sending him a costume from Italy, Corot specifies a particular regional garment from the hilly country near Rome that was noted for having escaped the influence or the taint of modernity. Over the course of the months and years that he himself spent in Italy, Corot traveled through these rural regions, recording not only the varied topography and flora of the landscape, but also the daily attire and attitude of local men and women. And I'm showing you here two pictures from the show, very small. Uh, a young woman from Papino with her spindle on the left, that is from Corot's first Italian visit in the late 1820s. And then on the right is a painting done 20 years later. Um, it's a woman in a costume from the Swiss Highlands. And you sense his interest not only in the distinctive garb of these two women, but I think in their sort of psychological presence. Um, in particular, I've always been very much in love with this little painting and the way that, again, over the course of maybe 45 minutes or an hour, he places this figure, she's leaning against a wall, but compositionally she just fits perfectly in the uh, rectangle of the framed space. And the light is gorgeous. There's a, um, a way that the thread coming down from the spindle all the way to her right hand, it picks up the light and it's just so subtle and beautiful. Women with jugs, this kind of motif of women at the fountain, um, a sort of neoclassical subject a la Poussin. This is a fantastic example from Geneva. But you can see Corot going to the Louvre. This is Rebecca and Eliezer at the Louvre. And there's that type. I mean, she could have stepped right into a Corot painting. Not only the um, strong colors, and the simplified um, classical garb, but that attitude of confidence is really wonderful. Um, other women with uh, jugs at the fountain, this motif from Basel and from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. But perhaps the greatest is our Agostina, which is the largest figure painting uh, in Corot's oeuvre, and certainly the largest of the Italian group. Uh, Life-size, epic in feel she is, and she has never looked better than she does now, um, sort of dominating the first gallery on a baffle. A chalk drawing shows the model uh, posing in Corot's studio, and you can see there her uh, left hand is um, holding a jug, and her right hand is pulling back her apron. Um, after laying in the painted composition, Corot decides to eliminate the jug. He doesn't like it in this particular scene. So that her left hand forms a triangle on the square top of the plinth, a gesture that adds to her aura of balance and equanimity. And I just I love what he's done here. Now that you know that the jug is there, you can actually see it with your naked eye. I mean, we've done imaging, but you'll be able to see it in front of the picture. Her monumental presence, strongly modeled head, broad shoulders and thick arms, towers above the low parapet and hillside behind her. Her high cheekbones and heavy brow cast deep shadows across her face, sculpting it into planes that enhance a plasticity that would inspire later artists like Brock. 
First owned by the avant-garde collector Jean-Baptiste Faure, Agostina hung in the salon of Joss and Gaston Bernheim. This is the Bernheim Jeune dealer in the early 20th century. And I'm showing you a picture of the wall in their dining room. And you can see there is Agostina, front and center. These are Cezanne paintings all around her, still lifes and landscapes. And uh, some Toulouse-Lautrecs above, right? Oh, I can't quite see it, is uh, the portrait of um, Choquet, of Victor Choquet by Cezanne that we had in the octagonal gallery a couple of months ago. So that's kind of fun. And then there is another portrait from the Cezanne portrait show, that's self-portrait in a bowler hat. So again, it's just um, sort of um, fun to have the overlap. Uh, works by Gauguin, uh, all of this in the Paris apartment of the Berenheims where uh, Agostina was seen in 1931 by Maud Dale, uh, who with her husband Chester was amassing, busily amassing the collection of French modernism that would become the core of the National Gallery's holdings of Impressionism and Post-Impressionism. Maud sees it, immediately contacts Chester and tells him to go and look at it. On the spot, Chester buys it and counted it among his favorites uh, throughout his life. Coro's interest in exotic costumes expanded beyond Italy to include Bulgarian, Greek, and Algerian costumes. And I'm showing you here among the most impressive painterly performances in Coro's figural of occurs here. It's a painting of a uh, woman in bridal attire, Jewish bridal attire from Algeria. And it is a little picture, but in pristine condition. So do spend some time with this picture in the show. Um, and the condition, the fact that it hasn't been overcleaned over the decades of its life, allows full appreciation of the artist's inspired brushwork, the range of mark making, the fluid strokes in the striped sleeves in particular, that sleeve is stunning, the dense texture of the embroidered discs, the impasto of her headdress, the delicate touches in her face. All of this indexes a prioritization of painterly operations over representational illusion or narrative. And truly, it is one of my favorites. In fact, it was a picture that when I was at the Getty, um, I tried to get the institution to buy it. It was on the market. It um, belonged originally to Louisine Havemeyer, and uh, H.O. and Louisine Havemeyer, who really made the great night, the core of the great 19th century collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, she had been introduced to Coro's figure paintings by Mary Cassatt. And I'm showing you a picture of Mary. It's just one of my favorite photographs of her on the right. And then there's Louisine uh, at the left. She is holding the suffrage torch. Louisine was a great suffragette. After her husband, H.O., died in 1907, she devoted herself entirely to the suffrage movement and actually founded, was one of the founders of the National Women's Party in 1913. Um, and Mary Cassatt, who of course was a, an impressionist and figure painter, not a landscape painter, and I think that she knew about Corot's figures, introduced them to Louisine, who bought almost two dozen figure paintings by Corot. And if you were to visit the Metropolitan Museum of Art, prior to my show, um, you would see they have a wonderful wall of Louisine's uh, women, Coro's women. Um, they've been very generous in loans. We have a lot of them here. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Degas usually is given credit for picking out Coro's figures as being something special. But I think that um, you know, Mary Cassatt was right there being um, an advocate and getting uh, her 
childhood friend to commit to this particular part of the um, art market. Louisine Havmeyer also owned these two pictures, the Greek girl on the right, and um, this is Mademoiselle de Foudras on the left. They're so interesting, we actually have them hanging just like this in the gallery. The painting on the right comes from the Shelburne Museum, uh, which is a museum that was started by Louisine's daughter, Electra. So Electra basically inherited or chose this picture, and it has a wonderful position of prominence in the Shelburne Museum. And then the painting on the left, Louisine and H.O. bought on behalf of their friend Oliver Payne. Um, and he ended up selling it, and so now it lives in Glasgow. But you can see these two women. They are quite distinct and discreet in their individuality, and in fact, we, do, we can count on the identities of them. They bear names, these two pictures, unlike most of the others in the show. The woman on the right is one of Corot's favorite models. Her name was Emma Daubigny. And here, Corot has dressed her up in a Greek costume. And then the woman on the left, supposedly, was the daughter of a local tobacconist. And it literally looks like she has just stepped in off the street in her black Victorian garb. And Corot has handed her the same jacket that Emma wears. And she puts it on, and then he paints her. So these props, you'll see them surface um, on different sitters across the show. Uh, let's see, Louisine also bought this picture, uh, comparatively less resolved, in which the identity of the sitter is less secure, but whose persona is nevertheless poignantly present. We call her Sibyl. Most of the titles that we have for these works were given after Corot's death by his cataloger, Alfred Robot. Um, and so Sybil, either because maybe the, there were models in his studio who had that name, or because it conjures the uh, antique muse of Sybil. But here, it's really one of the wonderful, um, sort of more powerful and advanced progressive paintings in the show. You can see that the artist has dispensed with superfluous details, as well as conventional notions of finish in this picture. Sitting before his model, he lays in the foundation for the whole and then builds the overall form using broad, firm strokes. The head is fully resolved, and the psychological presence of the model anchors the image and one senses the artist, who relies on her as subject as well as object in constructing the painting. So you'll see, and again, the Met has a fantastic conservation department, and they have done um, some very good imaging on her, although you don't even need an x-ray to see what's happening. He's very satisfied with the head, but you see her left hand has this kind of awkward gesture, and originally she had held the neck of a cello, and then her right hand was here holding a bow, and so she was interrupted in the act of playing the cello, but he didn't like that, so he paints it out, lays in the arm a little bit lower, sticks this kind of goofy flower in her left hand. It doesn't quite work, but I think the painting in general is very strong. Um, and the head, again, the head sustains the impact of the picture. Much exhibited in the 20th century is this painting, Interrupted Reading. It has been admired by modernist critics for its plainer treatment of the figure and for the evidence of the painter's process left on the canvas surface. Clarified by x-ray analysis, Corot reworked the figure to reveal more of her shoulder and the upper part of her dress. So the sleeve had come down here 
and then this whole section of um, nakedness was covered with fabric. But he removes those, um, emphasizing the geometric shape in particular. This is a wonderful uh, sort of negative space that he seems to want to um, capitalize on and focus on her head. The black contour lines that are laid in over paint layers probably quite late in the process. So for instance, there's a wonderful stroke that comes right underneath her arm, um, just sort of um, you know reinforcing its form. And then there's a marvelous little slash right here for the um, place where her arm bends. Um, and all of this gives the canvas a spontaneous sense of very much a work in progress. While the carefully realized head, again, foregrounds the cerebral tone of the picture. The tension between the model's convincing three-dimensional form and the abstract surface rhythms of the composition bring to mind, in particular, Cezanne's portraiture of the 1880s and 1890s. And I'm just showing you an example. This is coming from the Getty. So again, a similar interest in creating a simultaneous sense of volume and recession in space and these wonderful sort of activities and performances going on on the surface. Let me just back up one time. I didn't want to make a point of the fact that this painting, which seems, again, to be a work in progress, is signed. So it was, it was resolved enough for Coro. The signature is just here. And it is a totally satisfying painting, but um, you just don't think about pictures like this uh, until Cezanne or Matisse, even in the early part of the 20th century, being signed like that. At the center of the octagonal gallery, in the second gallery up in the West Building, this woman uh, sits. It's not huge, not a huge painting, but she holds the peace and order in that gallery. There's a lot happening in there, and she just sort of takes it all down to a kind of balanced control. Um, supremely stable. She's known as Woman with a Pearl, uh, which is a, a title that was given early on. Um, there's no pearl anywhere, but uh, the, the title has remained in part because she's been um, famous for a long time. She belongs to the Louvre and is always hanging. Corot, in a picture like this, is clearly after. His primary purpose is the evocation of the inner life of this woman, which is to court enigma, a la Mona Lisa, of course, whose mystery has enthralled viewers for centuries. And you can see the balance, the way, just even the way that the hands are, are shaped. But I think that he's, you know, he's trying to, to match what uh, Leonardo do, does in a painting like this. No real old master precedent for a picture like this, however. This is, comes from the National Gallery London. Corot conjures the sitter's presence while stripping down details, resulting in an essentialized, abstracted form. The model's firmly sculpted face, her broad brow that casts such deep shadows over her eyes. She looms from the dark background in three-quarter profile, while those extraordinary strong hues of yellow, blue, and white, and pink structure her costume. It is a haunting and powerful painting. It um, attracted important collectors of French modernism early in its life, including Edward G. Robinson, the great collector out in Hollywood of um, modernist painting. He then sold it, and Stavros Niarchos bought this picture, another great collector of modernism. And then finally, Lucian Freud spent a lot of money on this painting at auction and had it hanging in his London apartment over his fireplace. And then when he passed away a couple of years ago, he gave it to the National Gallery London. In this way, Corot's women hover between Sitter's likeness, 
Art historical precedents and formal innovations inspired by the artist's emotional and visual sensations in the presence of the model. Now the third gallery uh, is devoted to Corot's work in the genre of the female nude, um, in which Corot also engaged. And we introduced this gallery with an early salon work from the Lehman Collection at the Met. Uh, in which the great landscape painter inserts the story of Diana and Acteon from Ovid's Metamorphosis. So this is a strategy that Corot uses early on in order to get attention at the salon and to get prestige as an important painter. He is essentially a landscape painter and he paints a large, this is a gigantic picture, but of course plugs in a scene from either ancient, uh, from the Bible or from ancient literature in order to, order to elevate the sort of humanist import of his uh, creation. In this case, he's chosen this particular story and I'll just remind you how this story goes. Let me just orient you in the picture. There's the goddess of the hunt, Diana. These are her nymphs. And then way back here is poor Acteon, who, uh, as you know from the story, stumbled accidentally onto the goddess of the hunt. And she's bathing with her nymphs. He suffers a terrible fate. She transforms him into a stag, and he's chased down and destroyed by his own hunting dogs. So um, you can sort of see way in, way in the back, the um, antlers are already beginning to sprout on his head. And that wonderful gesture of Diana condemning him. Fantastic painting. I actually have a detail that didn't come out as crisply as I'd liked, but it's a wonderful um, sort of iteration of several positions of, of, of female nudes. In particular, I love this young woman here with um, red braids coiled up on her head and she's dangling from a branch. But the painting also thematizes the anxieties around the practice of men looking at naked ladies, the forbidden male gaze here so gruesomely punished. 20 years later, Corot leaned in again. I'm showing you the parameters of this famous genre, just to boot that up for you again. Titian's Venus and Giorgione's Venus. Um, the polished, hairless body, the idealized curves, the uniform flesh tones, they are generally either asleep or distracted or offering a kind of come-hither expression, the whole thing geared up for the comfortable, voyeuristic delectation of the male viewer. And Coro jumps in, and these are three iterations that you see in that third gallery, sort of playing around in this particular genre. Um, but it is hardly seamless, his engagement in this genre. And I would say most spectacularly, it is impacted by this painting that he does on the third and final trip that he takes to Italy in the 1840s. It is a little painting of, um, on, on paper, a fresh life sketch in which Corot applies a refined, formal sensibility cultivated over decades of studying paintings like the ones I just showed you at the Louvre and elsewhere. And he's engaging with a real woman's naked body, but all of these forms are circling in his head. There's a wonderful combination of pencil marks and color modeling, so it's the work of both graphite and the brush, and the result is this monumental image, again on a very small scale, with an extraordinary sense of this individual, of this person. It is, in fact, a portrait. And we know who she is because the artist inscribes it up here. It says, Marietta Aroma. So we know where and who she is, um, extraordinary sense of specificity. 
um, Corot cherished this painting and kept it. He never sold it, and so it came onto the market only after his death. And we would argue, and there's a wonderful essay in the catalog by David Ogawa, who has written um, extensively um, in the area of um, nudes and nude photography and Koro. And he talks about the relationship between this little picture and this great painting, the, uh, the Repose from the Corcoran. Um, this picture is one of only two in the whole exhibition that were pub publicly exhibited during Koro's life. So they were, um, there's a picture in the first gallery from the Met of a woman reading a book that I didn't show you um, that was in the Salon of 69. This picture was at the Salon of 1861. And in my opinion, as I think I mentioned, it is uh, the greatest European painting from William Clark's collection at the Corcoran. And when she arrived here, I promised her fame, uh, no fortune, but fame. Uh, and, and you'll see in that third gallery, she dominates the space. Uh, she is extraordinary in her utter self-possession while reclining nude on a leopard skin cast as a bacchante. It is a sexy painting to be sure, but she owns it. She's not offering up her nudity for the voyeuristic pleasure of the viewer, but rather turns her body away while her face engages frankly with the viewer. And I love in particular the way he brings the horizon line right underneath her neck as if sort of separating her um, psychological cerebral presence from her body. Critics were rather unsettled by the image. Alfred Delvaux's review from the Salon of 1861 comments on how dirty she seems to him. And he says, quote, in the brown tones of certain parts of this beautiful body, one discerns a certain scurviness that remains most unpleasant to behold. This surprises me, for there is plenty of water in Monsieur Corot's landscapes with which to bathe. And this was 1861, 1861, several years uh, before Manet would famously up Corot's ante with his notoriously scandalous nude Olympia. The delicate line, oops, this is so distracting. Let's go back, let me, let's just, let's, let me discuss this with this image up. Um, but both Corot and Manet um, walking a delicate line between the specificity of the person painted and the ideal, the, uh, the naked versus the nude. And of course, this whole issue is further complicated by the advent of photography, uh, specifically in the 1860s. Artists had used, it was so much more convenient, to use a nude study, a photographic study of a model, which were heavily marketed by photographers at the time. It was much less expensive, much less complicated than hiring a model. Now, in the 1860s, and this is what David Ogawa documents, these artist tools, of course, shifted over into a new sort of underground market that authorities would refer to as um, obscenities. They basically became pornography, and the vice squads were all over Paris in the 1860s and 1870s, and they start to regulate it and um, crack down on consumers, producers, and distributors, and the models themselves. And they started using these nude photographs to recognize particular women who were being brought in off the streets um, for uh, prostitution. So there's a really um, sort of uh, thin line around all of this activity. Police began confiscating them, um, again, using them to identify and prosecute models. Um, David Ogawa thinks that he has located the photograph 
um, that Corot might have used for this picture. And in fact, he thinks he, has, um, he can identify the actual sitter because her face, Corot works on it over several years and the face seems to shift from something rather vague to something quite um, specific and identifiable. Sadly, Corot's photography collection is untraceable. It was listed as a lot in his studio sale after his death, but it wasn't detailed and we don't know who, who bought the photographs or the collection together. Um, it's likely that Corot used photographs and a live model, sort of both, both, in a composition like this. Now I teased you with this picture, but um, for the sake of time, I'm going to leave this painting entirely up to you to make of it what you will. It comes from the Shelburne Museum. It is a fabulously weird and totally compelling image. Um, and you know, she's a bacchant, there's a, there's a bow lying next to her arm. A little puto is riding a panther who's really excited by the dead bird that she's dangling. I mean, it's really fascinating and weird and wonderful and I'm not gonna get into it. I'm gonna move from the carnal to uh, the higher precincts of, of allegory. And the series of studio paintings that comprises the fourth and final gallery of the show that Corot made in the last decade of his life. And I'm showing you here a sketch of Corot's studio, which was a famous place. Um, it was the center not only of his artistic production, but also of his social and professional life, as well as a personal archive that contained a lifetime of studies and finished works. Corot's studio series embodied his artistic aspirations and achievements viewed by later cri critics as quasi-autobiographical images essential to understanding his art. And again, I'm just showing you the space Here's the bank of windows that let the natural light in. And you can see that the walls are crammed with um, sketches. These are all his sketches um, and finished paintings, things on easels stacked up against the wall. There's a little sort of ante room. And some of the studio series that you'll see in that gallery are done out in this space and some are back over in this space. But it's a very well-documented place. He lived there from 1853 on. It was 58 Rue de Paradis Poissonniere, which is not far from the Grand Boulevards in the 10th arrondissement. Um, and there are accounts of, of hundreds and hundreds, maybe 500 painted studies arrayed, stuffed port portfolios, a whole life of visual note-taking that he hand at hand informing his contemporary practice. The social space of the studio, it was very meaningful, in particular Corot's studio, it was a gathering place for young and old artists. They would come to Corot's studio and with him, sort of holding forth, discuss artistic issues. Corot would tell stories about well-known paintings in his studio, as well as more obscure pictures. It was a kind of informal salon, or academy, or forum. There were not many places like it. Of course, the Ecole had a total dominance over the official art world. So it was kind of like an alternative space, private and independent. There's an account from Corot's friend, Henri Duminil, quote, all these little pictures are like detached pages, summarizing the artist's existence and his oeuvre, his attempts, his progress, as well as his weaknesses, or the hesitation he felt at certain moments between the different paths that opened up before him. So again, a kind of archive of process, incredibly educational. I'm showing you here the National Gallery's version of the studio of the artist, which shows 
The basic elements of this series are the costumed model sitting in her chair, not formally posing, but rather engaging in aesthetic reverie. She has her left hand on one of Koro's small later landscapes, which is sitting on the easel, and then her right hand holds the neck of a mandolin, which correlates, through the model's touch, the aesthetics of landscape painting and music. And Koro was a serious, the word I have been tossing out is mellomane. He was a, a maniac for music, uh, attended many concerts in a week in Paris. He was always running down to the Grand Boulevards to one of the theaters. Um, so music for Koro across his life was both an iconographic source as well as a compositional model and expressive ideal. And there has been some really interesting literature on the music model for what Koro does in landscape and what impressionists go on to do, and the ways in which the aesthetics of music are translated by these paintings into the pleasures that you can get from paint on, on a two-dimensional surface. So what we're talking about is something less uh, narrative and more about color and harmony and touch and counterpoint. Um, it's a sort of baby steps towards a kind of abstract pleasure. The scene here takes place in a recognizable corner of his studio. So you see that stove, although in the sketch, the um, stove has two pipes. And in our version, he's eliminated one of them because it just wouldn't make sense coming out of her face. Instead, it does this wonderful kind of uh, emphasis on her head makes you pay attention to her head. But you can recognize that we're in the, in the studio. And including on the back wall, up here, hopefully you recognize her, she is the um, Smith College picture, the blonde Gascon. It, it really is a perfect little painting, an absolutely fabulous, very simple, very powerful thing that was a kind of personal talisman for the artist. Um, so it's, it's interesting, and there's a, um, in the uh, catalog, Stéphane Allard talks about how strange this series is. Um, it's about Corot's uh, career as an artist. It's about art making, but Corot doesn't put himself in it. Um, there's an identification between the artist and the model, therefore, issues of female agency, that he's picturing one of his models involved in this complicated aesthetic practice. Um, the studio is both a concrete working space and an inner chamber of the artist's mind. These paintings are also allegories of the senses, of course, sight and touch and hearing. The National Gallery version is the only one that remained in Corot's studio at his death. All of the others had been sold. He was very attached to it. And we brought together on one wall in the fourth gallery this painting, along with ours, and you can see that it's the same composition. This picture comes from the Cone Collection in Baltimore. And it was a sketch uh, for our picture. It has all the signs of being done on the spot. There are some marvelous, very fresh passages in the sleeve. I love the way the gown sort of poofs through the slats in the, in the chair, the dress billowing. Um, the dog is very alert and realistic. Um, really wonderful thing. We also have on that wall this version, which again looks exactly like our painting. It lives in the Louvre. Corot has switched out the dog for a paint box, I think, to distinguish these two very similar versions. And I think what has happened is that someone comes to his studio, falls in love with 
our version, wants to buy it. Um, Corot says, no, I'm keeping it, but I'll make you a copy. And he does an almost exact replica for sale. And um, there was an iteration of this exhibition in Paris uh, from February to July of this last year. And the head of the French paintings department at the Louvre, who put that show together, had the two pictures side by side. You can still do it here, but it was very illustrative of what happens when an artist does a sketch makes a picture from the sketch, and then um, reiterates what he's already done. Uh, it's not quite as lively, and um, it sort of um, some of the tension has, has, uh, has, has left. It's still very beautiful. Um, and yes, I am arguing for the uh, supremacy of the National Gallery's version over the Louvre's, but um, anybody, anybody can see it. You can see it yourself. <laughs> We've been able to gather, gather, to gather together the additional pictures uh, in this series of allegories that Corot makes. And they really do, as a group, sum up his artistic life. This arresting painting shows the same props, uh, but a different gown and a different model. And he has her instead gazing directly at us. Really fantastic thing from a private collection in New York. Um, and then in that series, this lovely little picture that um, has always hung uh, in the East Building in the small French galleries. It came from Paul Mellon, Mr. and Mrs. Paul Mellon. Teeny little thing, signed, um, so fresh. I mean, again, I think he must have made this over the course of an hour or two, um, but it just is, a, is such a complete and satisfying work that he put his name on it, as you can see. And it's so interesting, on the Paris art market a couple of months ago, a, another version of this painting surfaced. Same size, same touch. Um, and I think it's the same thing must have happened. Somebody came in, fell in love with this picture hanging in Corot's studio, wanted it. Corot didn't want to get it, let it go, and so he, he made a, a transcription. Quite different, though, when you're doing a sketch, which is all about you know, liveliness, but um, still a very beautiful picture. And then finally, the lady in blue, who, uh, who's, who's um, been reproduced in banner form on the front of the gallery. She looks fantastic. She caused a small sensation at the Paris World's Fair in 1900. So it's the one Corot figure that people were, were more familiar with earlier on. Here, Corot has his model in the studio dressed in a contemporary gown, as if heading out to the opera. She's not quite dressed. Um, she has taken off her jacket in order to relax. She's got a fan in one hand, and she's got her, um, her chin in her hands. She would never go out in this state of undress. And so there's a nice uh, little sort of laced bit of um, frisson there of sort of um, erotic tension. This picture is signed and dated 1874 which is the year of the first Impressionist exhibition. And the avant-garde, as you know, would move away from the figure in the direction of landscape painting for the next several decades. Not until the early decades of the 20th century would these figures be broadly rediscovered. Only now are we able to fully grasp the artist's contribution in this most moving genre, the painted female figure. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.